Welcome to the Take 92 podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today I have the singer of not one, but two of my favorite bands, Russ Rankin from Good Riddance and Only Crime. He's got a new record, the brilliantly titled Thoughts and Prayers by Good Riddance. We're going to follow up with some things we talked about on the Ryan Green episode and move all the way through the catalog to present day. This is Russ Rankin. Where are you calling from? Eugene, Oregon. Okay, cool. You were actually my first punk rock show. Oh, wow. I went to see Less Than Jake, All, Good Riddance, and Limp here at the Wow Hall. I think it might have been 99. And and, uh, I had started my first band like a year before that, and, and it was a really just positive influence on my life and, and getting into all those great bands and the great messages in the songs. And, um, yeah, I just, I always credit you guys as, as being a big influence on me. So I, it's great to sit down and talk to you. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, man. One thing that, uh, I really like about good riddance is that you sort of, um, take two of my favorite things that don't necessarily always go together. And that's like, you got the, the tempos and the guitar octaves and the hooks of kind of SoCal punk rock, but then also some of the aggression and like the distorted bass and some other qualities, uh, occasional breakdowns, you know, that's, that's very much East Coast hardcore. I think you guys are one of the few that um, just do it really naturally. Does that come from just the combination of you and Luke and, and Chuck writing together, or is that something that just occurred over time? Or I think that we... Being a California band, like we were raised, yeah, especially Chuck and myself, we were raised on on the Dead Kennedys and DI and the Adolescents, the Middle Class, China White, TSOL, bands like that. It bleeds into our music for sure because it's such such huge influences for us. So our music has a kind of by design, but also kind of just subconsciously it has a real California sound to it. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, uh, we all also, while we were doing that, we were listening to bands like the Cro-Mags and Kraut and the Bad Brains and Sick of It All and being really heavily influenced by that, by that sound. Uh, and then eventually touring with a lot of bands from that, from that scene, uh, we really had a chance to sort of be heavily influenced by that. And we liked a lot of things about that kind of music as well. I'm glad that you mentioned the touring because, um, I wasn't really sure chronologically how to fit this in, but speaking from my own experience, touring can be a little bit awkward or I guess lonely as a straight edge artist. Even in the underground, there are more people who uh, act like Snoop Dogg or Motley Crue behind the scenes than they do, you know, what I would expect in this kind of music. Um, you know, what what has been your experience? Is the whole band straight edge? Um, no. 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 Okay. I'm the only one. You're the only one. That's the yeah. same thing in my group. <laughs> yeah, that's always been a, a love-hate thing for me about the road is that we wind up playing a lot of bars or just everybody hanging out and doing their thing. Um, what, what has that been like for you over the years? Oh, it's about the same. I mean, it's, it's definitely, I realize I'm in the minority. Most people who are involved in punk rock are, are going to be enjoying the, you know, the, the, the free alcohol and the the low behavioral expectations. Yeah. But that I also have, you know, a ton of friends in and out of music who, who drink and uh, a lot of them are really great people. So I, I 
I do my best not to judge uh, and to to just sort of take people on their merits as human beings. But I mean, at the same time, like it's it gets kind of old, and I've seen I've seen a lot of bad stuff. It's it's frust- It can be frustrating at times. Like the, the, I joke around a lot. Like we go to Europe and we'll be backstage, and like I just want a Coke Zero. Like so, there's there's like six thousand beers, but I can't get a Coke Zero. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's a definitely a luxury problem that I have. Totally. Yeah. I'm. I've always been the guy that just hands my drink tickets to the other bands or whatever, and um, yeah. you know, it's it it's an interesting thing to be the to be the one level-headed guy around that night you know i um my last guest was ryan green and we talked a little bit about i know ryan yeah that was actually what made me think to reach out to you is uh we talked about working on some of your early records he was talking about some of the crazy deadlines you'd be on to you know have everything recorded mixed in you know a week span and be sending the mastering like the same day that it was due and and shit like that. What do you remember about those early records that you guys made at Fat? I don't remember anything about deadlines. Really? Uh, I just remember. I, well, I, remember I, I vividly remember our first album because none of us had ever been had an experience like that before. We we had always done what a lot of bands do, which is save your money and practice as much as you can, and then go into a studio all night and knock everything out as you know, as efficiently as possible because you can only pay for X amount of time. Yeah. And then going to a place where there was actually a budget and the scrutiny and the expertise and the label boss is there in the studio for quality control. And as a vocalist, it was daunting because I can, I can vividly remember my first couple of vocal takes when it was time to sing and having, having Ryan tell me that I was flat and having no idea what that meant yeah. or how to fix it. You're like, this is punk rock, man. What are you talking about? Yeah, but it, it turns out it matters in punk rock too. And, and I didn't even know what it was. Like I couldn't even, it was like, it was like they were speaking French to me. Yeah. And so that, that was a pretty big wake up call. It was definitely uh, tough. It's a pretty, pretty defeating. I've had a lot of defeating times in the studio because I, I come face to face with my limitations as a as a singer because I'm not really a singer I'm not wasn't really born with any kind of gift for it like some people are over decades I think I've beat myself into a serviceable one but it's definitely not uh, doesn't come natural yeah that's that's definitely where I'm most self-conscious like I feel like I can write a great song you know I can do the screaming really easily but when it comes to actually putting myself out there and uh, and hitting the notes, uh, I've, I've definitely been there, man. Uh, it's something that a lot of people just have, and other people just got to work really fucking hard at it. But what was Mike's involvement on those early records? We were very, we were very prepared, I believe, like song structure wise. Yeah, like we came in with 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 the right amount of material, and it was pretty well thought out and, and structured correctly. But he did have some ideas with some like putting a harmony here and there where which we'd never done. Yeah. You know, and, and he, he was just sort of there to oversee, to make sure that we got everything done in time and to make sure that, that it sounded, you know, there, there was a certain standard for the material released on that label. Yeah. And I, th- 
within us enough as a band to know we could get it done. But I think he was also, uh, at that point anyway, I got the impression, although it was never, this much was never said, I got the impression that band's first album, maybe, or two, he would be more hands-on just to make sure that it was, the quality was good and the band got off to a good footing. And then as, as bands continue to write albums and progress, he was way more hands-off. Yeah, I heard him say something about that on the, the documentary you guys were in, um, the Fat Wreck doc. You did, what, three records with Ryan? Yes. Were those at Motor, or were those somewhere yeah, else? Uh, well, the first one, it was still called Razor's Edge. Yeah. And then it was, then it was old, old, the old Motor on Divisadero and Fell. And Motors has moved moved years ago. Gotcha. What was that relationship like with Ryan? As you guys, I mean, you get more comfortable with your producer over time, and the you know the collaboration becomes a little more involved. I would imagine. I think that we Ryan was was engaging and and really easy to like. He 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 helped us a lot by taking a lot of the the pressure off. Like he lightened the mood a lot and was. Uh, you know, I always had a smile. I was always, in a, always seemed to be in a good mood. Uh, I felt like he wasn't really from my world. Yeah. Uh, like he'd come from a different background. And so I think a lot of the things that we were trying to do that weren't so polished rock, that were more sort of raw, I don't think he had a, a context for. Yeah. And so that, that eventually led us to, to go elsewhere. We all loved Ryan, and he was amazing. And and I don't know about the other guys, but I learned a ton from him, a lot. That makes sense to me that the aggression would be a point of contention because Operation Phoenix that that was when I first heard you uh, was on the that, that's what you guys were touring on, and uh, that is probably the most aggressive record in the catalog. I've heard you say that it was somewhat either a love or hate it sort of album, but um, yeah, you feel like. Bill and Jason were more receptive to uh, pushing it in a little more hardcore direction? I think at that point, we wanted a harder sound due to just being in a really horrible place in in life. I had written a, a really dark record. I think it was a, lot, a combination of a lot of things. Like we, we all loved Ryan and we were happy, but at the same time, we... We, we knew the kind of music we were writing was a little bit different than some of the other bands that Ryan records. And yeah. we wanted to, we were curious to see how we would sound if we got with somebody who was used to doing harder music. Cause I think like we originally reached out to, to people from the East coast yeah. who had done like killing time and, and a path of resistance and bands like that. And then Sean was the one that had brought up the blasting room. Oh, I mean, obviously, we all knew who Bill Stevenson was for sure, but Sean was a big fan, as as was Chuck, of Jason's band Wretch Like Me. Oh yeah, and the production on Wretch Like Wretch Like Me's albums, which was done in the blasting room by Bill and Stefan. And so eventually, you know, we agreed to do that to go that route. And that's interesting too, because at the time, I mean, if you look back now, a shitload of bands went over to the blasting room in the decade following. But at the time, there really weren't a lot of bands um, outside of the Descendants and All stuff that they were doing. You know, it seemed like a lot of just their their own projects. You know, I remember being really blown away by the, you know, the really 
punchy, round drum sounds and the super aggressive bass. And like, it just, uh, it had a certain power to it. And, and I feel like that continued to evolve over the next few records with them. Are you a, a big person on like the tone and, and, you know, the, the gear and the sound, or are you just more about the song structure and the songwriting? I, I am about the other stuff too. I just don't have the, the expertise to really know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But the thing with what was cool with Bill and Stefan and, and, it, and to be fair, like it's just, it's just because of their background. Like Ryan Green has the same, if not more, uh, technical production chops as those guys. Yeah. But Ryan, Ryan comes from a different place. And so like, but would if I'm, if I'm out there doing a vocal and Bill, Bill gets on the talk back mic and says, you know, you got to see more like Des. Yeah. Like, like Ryan Green would have never said that to me. Yeah. And so that, that sort of like re- point the, the having the same points of reference, I think went a long way towards getting, getting us, Uh, closer to where we kind of wanted to be i mean that was even something me and ryan talked about was you know the right instrument is just kind of a tool for the song and 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 the right producer is sometimes more important stylistically matching than it is all the gear or the technical prowess you know you kind of have to get where the other person's coming from above all yeah so you guys had a pretty big record following with uh symptoms that was my second yep. time seeing you guys something that stands out about that record to me is the lyrics i would compare you to like greg graffin in the kind of things that you write in that like i'm 15 years old you know grabbing the dictionary once in a while but it's in such a eloquent way it still has heart to it it's not like um you know one thing i don't like about metal players is that they a lot of times they play just to show show off you know, yeah. and it didn't feel like that lyrically. It's you know, there's still a lot of heart behind it. You know, songs like Cheyenne, um, yeah. or you know, I would even tie back to the most recent album you had, uh, Teachable Moments. You know, yeah. s- songs like that. I, I just really got so much out of. You know, I felt like there's not enough of that. That's that's being packaged in a digestible way. It's not a preachy way. Do you feel there was anything special about what was going on in that time? I, I love Symptoms. It's probably my favorite. I love making it. I was in a really good place just in life and happy. And I was starting to feel like I had, was figuring out how to be a singer, like how to kind of own it and try things. And I felt like I had found my stride, I guess. Like I was, I was confident as a songwriter and as a singer. And that, that whole experience writing that album and recording it, I have really good, really good memories. That that album and that subsequent year of touring was ended up being the you know the height of our band. Like we, Fat Records really really pushed that album, and it was noticeable. You know, we we'd play a lot of the same clubs every summer, and like that summer we ended up playing a lot of like the next club up in size in nice. a lot of cities. And the same thing was, we went to Europe right after that. And the same thing, we played bigger clubs. You know, we were going from like the 500 cap rooms to like the 1,000, 1,500 cap rooms. Alan selling a lot of them out. And it was it was pretty cool. And there was a note, you could notice that uh, every town we'd roll into, there'd be something in the weekly about us because Fat had pushed so hard and Vanessa had done 
such a good job with the press. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, so that was uh, I have really good really good memories about writing that album, recording it, and then that that year of touring, and that that was a, a really good that was a really good time for me aside from music. Uh, so I just have good memories of that. Whoa, I as you were talking about it, I was like, wait a second, and I looked at my back door, and I still have the poster from that show. It's Good Riddance, Choke, Go for the Throat, and Our Friends from Here, Paint by Numbers. Uh, I remember Go for the Throat was awesome, too. I bought their album. Might have been 02, 03, something like that. Yeah, that was a good time. Yeah. Yeah. You worked with some other bands, actually, as a producer. You did the the Missing 23rd record, is that right? Yeah, Uh, yeah. Who who else did you do around that time? I produced a band from Calgary called Downway, and I produced a band from here in Santa Cruz called Riff Raff, and okay. another band from here called First to Fall. How long has it been since you've uh, worked with a band like that? Uh, it's been at least, man, like thirteen years or so. No one has a budget for a producer anymore. Nobody. Yeah. It's hard. So I mean, I, I get it. I loved I loved doing it. And I would have loved to to make a make a career out of it. I really felt like I I had a lot of fun doing it, and I thought I thought I was actually sort of good at it. Um, but it's you know it's tough because I'm not an engineer, and yeah. so like so you got bands got to pay for studio time and an engineer, then they'd have to pay me too. And the bands that are you know at, at this point, I'm not a, I'm not in demand, so the bands who would be using me would just be using me because they're Good Riddance fans or whatever. And so they would be having a, having a, you know, a small budget for the recording anyway. So, yeah, but I love, I love doing it. What was your, um, experience in doing that? I mean, were you, are you going all the way and doing pre-production and helping them arrange the songs or is it? Yeah. Mo- yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Sort of the same. Like when we went to the blasting room the first time, before we ever went out there, Bill came out to Santa Cruz and went to several of our practices. And I remember he was standing in the practice room, standing like three feet away from me while we were playing, <laughs> writing down, furiously scribbling on a pad. And, and then we got done with the song. And I was like, I was like, dude, what are you doing? He goes, I'm writing a roadmap of your song. <laughs> and, uh, and then he went to a couple shows that we played, but he was really hands on. And so what I, you know, a lot of the things that I do when I produce a band, I I learned from watching him and Stefan. That's awesome. How much was Stefan involved in your guy's career? Because, I mean, for the most part, you see a Blasting Room record, it's Bill and Jason on the credits. Um, but uh, I know that, you know, Stefan was involved a lot more, it seemed like, on the early records. Yeah, Stefan, when, when Stefan's still in Fort Collins... It was it was tag team. It was it was. I would say our first Phoenix uh, symptoms, and then the Phenomenon of Craving EP. Oh yeah, was, was, that was a was, good record. I forget about Bill, that. Bill and Stefan. Stefan actually is the one that did most all, almost all my vocals, and then Bill did all the guitar and drums. Um, Jason would be there to to mix and. And sort of track when the other guys were, were burnt out. Um, but they had a really cool system, which they still sort of do. Like traditionally, we had gone into the studio, you know, whether it be Ryan Green or anything before that, uh, and we would do all the drums and then all the bass and then all the guitar and then the vocals at the end. Yeah. And what the blasting room does 
is once the drums are done, because there's scratch instruments, once the drums are done, anybody can go. You know, we'd get like some drums done, and then maybe Luke goes for a couple songs, and then I jump in for a song, and Chuck comes in at night. Like, nobody was just sitting around with nothing to do for hours, and nobody was getting hammered on for hours at a time. Uh, it kept everybody pretty fresh and involved. Well, yeah, I know a lot of people don't like recording because a lot of times they're waiting around for their turn or yep. or the drummer finished early and is going to have to sit around the rest of the week while everybody else nails their part. So, I mean, you guys just have like, oh, the bass rig's set up, the guitar rig's set up, who wants to jump yep. in? Yeah, that's basically how it goes. Like we have at some point, like with this last album, we did have some time constraints. The last two albums, because we were working around people's jobs and families. Yeah. So like there's days for that Luke couldn't be there. You know what I mean? Like because of work or family or what have you. So there were some days where like, okay, we got to get guitar done this day because because Luke's not going to be here for the next two days. Yeah. So we got to have stuff to. So that that was that came into play, but generally it's it's pretty cool like nobody's getting hammered on for too long and nobody's sitting around doing nothing for too long that's a pretty smart system to keep the bands happy and and get good performances out of out of people because they're not drained yeah I, I thought so it was it was seemed it seemed really outside the box to us when we first went to blasting room but now it's like i i can't even imagine doing it any other way how much are you guys touring on each of those records? Did it increase over time, decrease over time? Well, the symptoms, that year after symptoms was was the max. That was 2002. Like in 2000, we were we toured for about nine months. Man. We did, we did all eight weeks of the Warp Tour. We did deconstruction tour in Europe. And we did a full, uh, we did a Western Canadian tour. We did a lot. We did Reading and Leeds Festival. Damn. Over in the UK, and uh, and when the symptoms came out, we we toured all over North America and Japan and all over Europe. And then Luke decided he wanted to go back to school. Okay. And then that, like everything, pretty much changed at that at that point. So ties of blood and affection, you guys aren't hitting it quite as hard. No, we barely played at all. Barely at all. Yeah, we I think we did like uh, once we did a, we did a summer tour on that record. Like a second North American tour, yeah. and we probably did, I think we did two weeks in Europe. Now, at that time, had you already started Only Crime? No, Only Crime. That was probably when it started. Like we we toured in '02 with with we've been a bunch of shows in the East Coast with Bane, and that's where I met Aaron. Okay. And we talked. We do. We always we we became friends pretty quickly, and we talked about wanting to start a band together. And was that just and a natural then, result of you guys slowing down a little bit? Yeah, we, we, we got to be quick, pretty quick friends and we both loved coffee. So we'd go, we'd get to the city, to the club and we'd go walking to try to find coffee and we'd talk. And uh, he was a fan. He was, a, you know, he, he liked Good Riddance a lot. And, you know, I, I think, I thought and still think that Bane is one of the best bands of that, of that genre. Yeah, I mean, and, easily best live bands ever. Um, and he, so we would talk about that, about what we wanted to do. I think that I reached out to Zach at that point because I wanted to have two guitar players. Yeah. And it was important to me to have a band of, of you know people that didn't that didn't drink or do drugs. 
so I was trying to like think of who I knew that that were and and Zach is Zach was a, a great guitar player and vegetarian and drug and alcohol free and so I was like well, and, and I knew he wasn't doing a whole lot at that point he was he was playing in Guar yeah this is like here and there pre and, um, pre Rise Against yeah I called him. I said, hey, I want to start a new band, and, and Aaron from Bain is going to be in it. They'd never met. And so we were like, yeah, Zach was like, he was interested. And then we were actually going out to record Gone by Ties of Blood and Affection, and I called, Bill called me the day before we left to go out there just to, just to talk and ask how I was doing. And I told him that I was I wanted to start this band. I told him I had Zach and, and, and uh, Aaron from Bain, and Bill said, I want to play. Awesome. And I thought he was messing with me. And he's like, no, dude, I, I want to do it. He said, what are you trying to do? And I said, well, I wanted to play, like, I want to play really, really heavy music that has no metal in it. Yeah. And he goes, I want to do it. That's awesome. He had, like, he had, like, unfinished Black Flag business. And so we, in 03, we got together for the first time to jam, but it was just me. It was me, Zach, and Bill. And I played guitar, um, and then eventually that fall we got together back in the, back in Massachusetts. And Pete, who was the the bass player for Bane at that time, played bass on our first demos. And then eventually Zach's brother Donnie ended up playing bass on the first couple albums. Yeah, I think I mean you guys came out and dropped two back to back classics. As far as I'm concerned, I mean the, those. Those albums are fucking great, and uh, I was lucky enough to see you guys two nights in a row on the tour with uh, Strung Out and Wilhelm Scream. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, just on paper, Good Riddance, Black Flag, Rise Against, Bane, I couldn't believe it wasn't a bigger deal, to be honest. <laughs> you know? Well, that was pre-Rise That was pre -Rise Against, like Zach, yeah, Zach yeah. had the chance to join Rise Against, and so he left our band. Just in, in, in hindsight, I mean such a an amazing amalgam of of songwriters and musicians and um i briefly met you at one of those shows there's another band on the tour that was sort of like a and i don't mean this in a disparaging way i just don't know else how to describe it but they were a hardcore band more in the like hot topic sense like maybe screamo or something like that yeah who's on the bill and i remember being right up front singing along to all your guys songs and everyone's just standing there. And then the next band goes up and they're, you know, playing that style. That's, I mean, think about it. It was 2004, 2005, you know, and what's really big at that time is eyeliner and throaty screaming and stuff. And, yeah. um, and the crowd in Portland was going apeshit and jumping over each other. And um, I remember kind of seeing you side stage and just being able to say for a second like how much I loved the record and what you guys were doing because it, it was like a weird pendulum swing in that era. I mean, that was ar around the same time that I started my band, Dead Fucking Serious. It was just like, can we just get back to like fast, old school, hardcore shit, you know? Did you feel like there was um, like a... A downturn in the punk scene at all in that era because like hardcore was going super metalcore and the old way of things was starting to fade away a little bit i think that 
music is just constantly in flux and I think that there's always going to be like I, I, I think that even even the word hardcore has become so subjective Yeah, it just means so many different things to different people depending on usually your age some of the tours that only cram got thrown on didn't, didn't really serve us in hindsight but that being said, like it would, it would have been really, really hard to find the right tour. Like our, we used to joke all the time that like we're a really difficult band to like. Like we were a lot of people's favorite band who were in bands. Yeah. But we weren't. We weren't anybody's favorite band who was just a music fan going to a show. <laughs> yeah. In fact, we would bump. We would bump people out. Like I remember, we we eventually got offered to open for Rise Against after Zach had left and joined Rise Against. And yeah. So we were the, we were the first band of the night, and and you know Rise Against at that point was playing to to a pretty big audience of, of people who who likely wouldn't have, wouldn't have been going to a punk show just a few years earlier. Yeah, um, and so the doors would open, and these these really young kids would come rushing in and run up to the barricade and just park themselves there. Little did they know that they would have to watch, you know, only crime. And just the look, the look on their faces was was priceless. See that I that just we would play. I don't get it. You know, I was a huge fan ever since I heard the unraveling, and then the uh, revolutions came out like in between symptoms and blood and affection, and I I was just like, dude, all these melodic hardcore records coming out, you know, are just killing it right now. Fat and the blasting room together was really inspiring to me at that time and i get that you guys had some dissonant chords and stuff like that but i mean a song like just us or something like that off the second record i mean that could easily have been a good riddance song it's catchy it's i don't know how it's not relatable to somebody who's going to a rise against show but maybe it's just the familiarity thing i don't i don't know man like that probably it's probably what it is but we we also made a point of of trying to sound not pretty and packaged in a way that like a lot of a lot of music was like we we basically were trying to sound like slip it in era black flag but with more melody yeah uh, that's sort of what we we're going for you know a lot more jazz influence like play and i'd be able to play songs not the same way twice really long lumbering stops and pauses and like tempo changes that stuff wasn't really, I don't think, listener friendly for the for like the the kids. I think. Yeah, I guess not. I mean, at at that age, I mean, I was nineteen, twenty when you guys were coming out, and and that was exactly what I was looking for. But maybe had I been twelve, I would have missed the point. I don't know. Hard to say. I mean, at that time, you've got both bands happening simultaneously. Um, was there a conscious effort to like oh i'm gonna set this song aside for that project i'm gonna set this one aside for this or is it more just like get with the band and okay let's work on writing new stuff together over the next x amount of time well the writing process for both bands was vastly different and okay the aesthetic for for both bands was vastly different and so i didn't write much much music for only crime at all. I wrote. I wrote just us. I wrote sedated. Maybe one other song, and the rest of it was you know the early stuff was largely Zach. Zach had the, written the bodies of the songs, but we did in Only Crime. It was very much a 
just a bunch of dudes in a room and like a guy would have the first four bars of a, of a riff and it would teach to everybody and so they would play it and then we would do this thing where like we would play this piece four times and then everybody would just keep playing and see what happens yeah <laughs> like Ornette Coleman style and so sometimes it was a disaster but that that's how we built a lot of, the, a lot of our songs and so once that happened, I would sit there in the room with my with my notepad, and I would just start writing, not really thinking about much as far as lyrics, but more thinking about like what's what kind of feelings is the music bringing to me, and how do I how can I use words as kind of a a sixth instrument? How can I use words rhythmically or melodically, whether or not they make a whole lot of sense? And which is which is what I got that from this from being a big psychedelic furs fan. I feel like a lot of the a lot of the lyrics and, and vocals in that band are are more about rhythm and and melody than being like a cohesive thought. And I mean, so a lot of the only crime stuff is written by the band band sort of jamming almost improvisationally. And then me just writing whatever came to mind over it. That's got to be a really liberating thing when you're used to. You write so many things that are, you know, on message and um, very much about what you're saying. And yeah. to have a project that's looser and more just about how you're saying. You know, I, I'm a person who's always had different. Um, different musical projects simultaneously so I can put creativity in one direction and then not burn out on it and I can switch up and put it in another direction and um, it makes sense that you guys are kind of keeping it improvisational because it, it definitely feels almost like you said jazzy I mean it's not like it's not the refused you know where you're actually putting in swing, no. swing time shit but yeah it's got a very uh, just kind of natural everybody's influences rolled up into one thing. I like the second album a lot. I thought the third album was by far the best. Really? Yeah. It was what? my favorite. That one? That was, with, that was a different, a couple of different guys in the band, but um, I thought we really, I thought the third album, we, we achieved what we had set out to do most. I was, uh, actually, I put that in the car today when I was driving home. I, Am I remembering it right that that record was more written in chunks and pieced together uh, a little bit remotely? Um, I feel like I read something about that when it came out. Yeah, mostly Matt, Matt, our guitar player. He he has he has like six thousand riffs on his computer. Jesus. At what point did uh, he join the group? Well, when Zach when Zach left, we needed a guitar player, and so. Uh, Aaron knew him from from Bain and Modern Life is War playing together. The one thing that Matt brought was uh, he's a younger dude, like young young for Only Crime, <laughs> yeah. but he has really he has a really old soul, and he plays guitar a way that just used to make Bill's eyes light up. Nice. And he's every he was every every bit the guitar player that Zach was. Like those guys are like on another level. Bill could say, hey, play an inverted seventh, and they both know what he's talking about, and they can both do it. But Matt has just a really just 
solid, hard, thick playing style, and he's really precise. Um, so he he brought a lot of that to the band, and, and had a lot of has a lot of really cool uh, the way he the way he frets chords. It reminds me a lot of the way Dan Dan Yeeman from Lifetime plays. Like mm. it's it's a it's a it's a standard chord, but he's got his fingers in places where they normally wouldn't go. So there's like a dissonant string or like a a third or a fifth in there somewhere because he's because he's hitting a string that normally normal people don't hit. So like when you listen to that third only crime album, a lot of that stuff to me, it just sounds the guitar playing it just sounds magical. It just sounds like there's so much more instrumentation going on, but it's just guitars. You know who I'd love to actually hear you guys with now that I think about the guitar playing is uh, I love to see only crime and off do a tour together. Yeah, that'd be great. That's that's a good uh, that that's a good comparable. I think I would agree with that. Yeah, both very like. I mean, again, it's all it's all just people trying to view Saccharine Trust or Black Flag or whatever. But yeah, yeah. This is like the one anomaly in your catalog. Speaking of that album, um, what was the catalyst for going to Rise Records? We well, we felt like. I think we felt like we didn't get a lot of attention from Fat. Only as far as Only Crime goes. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, it's it's relative because we maybe we didn't, but we also were so part time. Like we didn't really, we didn't work as hard as some bands do. And so, at some point, we we wanted to see what else was out there. And unfortunately, I think that when we recorded Pursuance, we had designs on on it being successful and us making more of a go of it than we did at that point. Right. You know, Rise was great, and they were really, really enthusiastic about the band. Uh, and so, because we felt like we'd sort of, we'd sort of reached as far as we could go with Fat. So, did a little research just in seeing what um, other interviews you had done. Um, like, uh, uh, I had seen the one you did with my friend Aaron, but uh, one thing I was surprised to see from an older interview was that you looked down on uh, bands reuniting and that you said it, quote, didn't sit right with you a lot of time. But I feel like, um, I mean, you guys must have had such a, just a long and deep friendship with the guys in Good Riddance. Peace in Our Time, in my opinion, is some of your greatest music. What was that uh, like? I mean, was there a conscious of like, oh, I don't want to get the band back together for it's gonna, it's not gonna look right, it's not gonna feel right. I mean, or, or I mean, how did that, how did that come about? Well, we we decided to stop playing. It was a, a pretty firm decision. Uh, it was a couple things. It was guys were being being really busy with families and jobs and small children, and we had put My Republic out, which we thought was okay, and then we, no one really bought it. And then we played some shows on it, no one really came, and we're like, okay, we see what's happening here. So we decided to walk, we we'd rather walk away with on our own terms with some grace and some dignity, rather than have to be dragged out back and shot, put down. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's what we did and we did a play for five years and we had 
we had numerous offers, particularly in Europe for festivals and whatnot that were, that were, you know, pretty enticing, but we weren't interested. And I would keep getting uh, contacted mostly by Chuck, like, you know, every six months or so during those five years to see if I wanted to do it. And I was just, I kept saying no. And, and at one point, uh, they, they just got me to agree to meet for coffee. We talked quite a bit about what we missed about it. And at that point, those guys all were in a place where the kids were a little bit older and they had more time. And I agreed to rehearse. And then we decided to play a festival in Belgium just to see how it would go. Like, let's see how, let's see how this feels. Was, was Sean with you guys? I didn't recall him being there when you guys split, but then he was back for Peace in Our Time. Is that right? No, he was, because he, he played on My Republic. Oh, he came back for, okay. Yeah, he came back on in like 2004, because the drummer we had lived in Philadelphia, and we were touring so little that it wasn't really worth it for him uh, t- to come out just for like a show here or a show there. Yeah. And, with Luke's, with Luke's school schedule and with how things were going, uh, we, we just weren't playing much. And so we had a chance to do a tour in Australia. And I think 2004, Sean came back for that. And then just, we, we got him back. He was back in the band full time. And we did, we did uh, My Republic. Yeah, I got I got that one and the the final show live record you did. Um, I just I couldn't remember if he was back on that or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you guys are doing peace in our time. You decide not to go to Colorado. You're doing it at Motor again. Is that just yeah. because of everyone's schedules? You want to be closer yeah. to home. Yeah. What was that like in terms of? Uh, I mean, you had made what four, not counting the only crime ones. Five if you count phenomenon a craving in a row in Colorado. I mean, what was it like, uh, going back to motor with the old gang? It was fine. And it was, it was motor had moved to the new, it was a new place, okay. but it was, I mean, because Bill, Bill came out. So it was the same. It was the workflow was the same. Uh, the, you know, one studio is as good as the next. If you, if you've got a good tracking room and a good board, yeah, I think, and if your engineer knows what he's doing. So, uh, it was definitely, easier on everybody based on just based on domestic responsibilities yeah i uh remember when the first video came out i think it was dry season is that the song it was yeah probably man that (laughs) that track blew me away i didn't realize that you guys had been making music again and um when that first single dropped i was like holy shit with that that chromatic guitar part and just the like the aggression of the the vocals in that first verse was like, oh my God, these guys are like as as good, if not better than ever. Did you guys hit the road pretty hard for that record? We, we did as much as we could. Like touring, touring for us looks much different now yeah. than it used to. Uh, so we, we sort of have to pick our spots and make the, make the most of it. So we, you know, we'll do two weeks tops in a, in a, in a go. Other than anything longer than that, guys will start getting divorced, and fired. Yeah. And so. Yeah, I'm the same. I don't uh, like to go out longer than like three weeks. That's when I start getting burned out. Yeah. Pissed so off we, at people. Yeah, we do the best we can, and and we got you know try to play 
we tried to play uh, Europe. We went to Australia. Uh, we did the Fat Records thing in Japan, which was cool. The Fat Records anniversary show that was pretty awesome. Nice. And you know, fly-in dates like we we got a chance to play. Um, after Peace in Our Time came out, we played. We didn't really do any festivals around here so much. We did Fest in 2012 in Florida after we started playing again. But yeah, like when we our our deal now is like we we just try to get the most out of our out of the time that we have. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely hard as people have kids and other shit going on. It took a little while, but I I was really glad that you guys came back together for thoughts and prayers. Um, I mentioned uh, your interview with my friend Aaron. She was like, anything coming up? It's been a little while. And you're like, I don't know, probably not. Maybe who will see. And, uh, and, and that was less than a year ago. So, I mean, this record must've come together really quickly. Were you guys really just inspired or, or, or not? And we just didn't want to tell anybody. Ah, playing it coy. Yeah. We've, we've been working on it for a while. Okay. That's cool. Where do you feel like um, stylistically this fits in your in your canon? Because I mean, you guys are one of those great bands that uh, continues to evolve, but you know, in the same sense of like Pennywise or Bad Religion, you still keep those core tenets in your in your sound. I mean, where do you feel like this record fits? Since none of us have got to hear it yet. Well, there's one song that's out. Yeah, so a lot of people have heard that. Yeah, I heard the single. It was a it was a really really catchy hooky song. Uh, sounded like classic Good Riddance stuff. That's that's mostly what it is. I mean, if if people are if Operation Phoenix is your favorite record, I'm hoping you like this one. But the, but it's it's not it's not that record. It's more like the hardest part on Operation Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's to me it's more it's more along the lines of peace in our time and a little bit of symptoms of loving spirits it's just it's shorter songs uh i feel like there's a lot of good hooks smart lyrics hopefully and uh not too many songs like hope we're hoping that people will like listen to it and not skip anything and then want to listen to it again that's the hope i love that and even the runtime on peace in your time i mean it's less than a half an hour that's i mean i like it short and fast you know like my band just finished a record that's 18 songs in 18 minutes, you know, and, and you guys definitely keep up the momentum in, in a real way. Attention spans are not what they used to be out there. And so um, I know how easy it is to skip and, and not really listen. So I, to like get, get people songs that, are, that, are, that engage them and that, that don't go on too long and then on to the next one, on to the next one, and then hopefully maybe they're listening through it for a second or third time. That's that's our hope. How many tracks you got on this one? Twelve. Okay, a little shorter than last time. It's about twenty-eight minutes. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's that's kind of the sweet spot, man. Is is yeah. just just under half an hour. Uh, do you feel like this crazy Orwellian world that we're living in right now has um, brought out anything different lyrically on this record? No, it's unfortunately it's the same, the same things. <laughs> yeah, that uh, some things never change, but at the same time, this uh, some of it is still so unbelievable. I look for bands like this going, oh, there's a new Good Riddance, thank God. Oh, there's a new Bad Religion. Like we need yeah. the, we need this right now, guys. <laughs> like we're looking to you. Yep. Are you guys uh, 
Am I going to get to see you guys coming up the West Coast uh, this summer sometime? I couldn't tell you. Couldn't I tell I me. I know there's nothing planned for Oregon at this point. Son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, but we'll see. Like, we played we played Portland last year. Yeah, yeah. Had a pretty good show with, with success. And uh, the last gang, that was fun. Oh, I like those guys a lot. I wouldn't be surprised if we played Portland. I don't think we'll play Eugene. Nobody does. Nobody yeah. does. <laughs> well, I'll have to. Uh, I'll have to make the trip, man. It's been too long yeah. since I got to see you guys, and uh, I'm really excited for the new record. I'll. I'll be. Uh, I'll be buying it the day it comes out, or if the record store likes me enough, I'll. Uh, sometimes I sneak in Thursday night before they close and buy it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, I'm. I'm really looking forward to it. You guys, um, like I said, really, really delivered with that last one, and thank you. Um, I'd put it up there as your top your favorite record shuffles from time to time but man that um i'll tell you that one's gotten the most play since it's come out it's just uh really really solid writing and and um thanks you guys are sounding better than ever man so yeah i, I appreciate your time that uh kind of worked out perfectly awesome man well, i appreciate you uh, taking the interest and taking the time all right, that is our show. Thank you so much to Russ for doing it. And I totally forgot to ask about the Creep Division reunion. But other than that, I think that was a great time. And thank you guys for listening at home. Please subscribe to the show. You can check out the recent interview we did with Ryan Green. And I've got plenty more up the sleeve for the future. Go ahead and give us a five-star rating and review. Help spread the word on social media. I'm going to leave you with a brand new single from... The Good Riddance album, Thoughts and Prayers, which I wish I'd fucking thought of that title first. You can pre-order at fatrec.com. The song is called Don't Have Time.